All right. Thank you, church. It's so good to get to be here. Say thank you to Ashley and the worship leaders and the band. Fantastic stuff. Thank you, thank you. Well, I have to say, everyone have a seat. Thank you so much for that warm welcome. I appreciate that so much. In a lot of ways, I feel like I'm coming back home. I travel the country. I speak all around the country and do my thing. But this, there's a piece of me that's here. My heart is here. And also, my mom is here. So she's here on Sunday. She, this is my mom right down here. Her name is Ann. Her nickname is Flingy. So when you see her, say hello, Flingy. Her hip-hop name is DJ Flo Flicky. All right? So anyway, when you see her, give her a mad shout-out. She'll be on the tables. All right? So... Uh, I'm, I'm glad to get to stand in for Jordan, and uh, I'm just curious, where are my parents in the house? By show of hands, where are my parents at? My parents, okay, all right. You have my greatest respect. I, I don't know anything about raising kids. Here's my entire skill set with kids. Hello. After that, I'm out. That's all I know. That's it. And, uh, but if you know how it feels, if you have one kid, two kids, three kids, more, you know, you're always taking role, right? You're like, one, two, three, they're still here. One, two, three, they're still alive. One, two, three, they're okay, right? Your whole deal is, like, you know, I just don't let them die today. Like, that's the whole, like, as a parent, you're kind of you're kind of in that in that headspace. You're like, I just got to make, they're still here. They're still, all right, they're all still alive. They did a head dive off the sofa, they're still alive. And uh, that kind of, all right, now, imagine what that would be like to do for a thousand plus people. And that's what it's like to be Jordan. That's what it's like to be a pastor, is that you're always thinking about your people. You're always thinking, are they here? Are they here? Are they okay? Are they all right? You got the burden of two or three or four kids, and Jordan and Holly are pastoring a thousand plus people, and that's what it's like. And so every once in a while, it's good for Jordan and Holly have some time off, because as you know, it's like you need some time off. This is why there's vacation Bible school and Mother's Day out, so you have a place to dump the kids off so you can have some time by yourself, right? And so that's why it's important for them to have times of renewal and relaxation. So I was so proud when he asked me to come stand. He said, would you like to come preach for me? I said, let me pray about that. Okay. And, uh, and so I was here. Well, let's take a minute and pray, and I want to talk to us about something that we all need today. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for your presence. We thank you that you made a way for us. The Hebrew says that we can boldly enter into the throne with confidence because your blood has gone before us. You made a way. So I pray today that you'd set people free and help people to draw close to you like never before. I pray that everything that has been between us and God that the distance would be obliterated that the barriers would be broken down and that we would come unafraid and unashamed and enter into your presence and say Lord Jesus do in me what I could never do for myself Lord Jesus we trust you for it and in your strong and powerful name I pray amen 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 well here's what I want to talk about today I want to talk to us about the grace of God now, I, w I was, last week I was with having uh, lunch with a bunch of pastors someplace, and they said, what are you going to preach on? And I said, I'm going to preach on the grace of God. And, of course, they all immediately shift into theology mode. They're like, well, is it uh, unlimited grace, uh, limited grace? What kind of grace? Is it old covenant grace? Is it New Testament? Is it, is it you know, is it reformed grace? Everyone's, uh, they, say, they start talking about it among themselves, and they turn to me and they say, what's, what's your opinion on it? And I said, uh, I need it. 
And I, that's it. That's my opinion is that I need grace. How many people do we have here that need some grace? Anybody? Yeah. And I think, that I, I, I think that I must look like I need it. You know, guys do what I do. We always want to look anointed like we walk with God. But somewhere, I think I must look like I need grace. I was, when I, I was at the airport a couple weeks ago, and I'm walking to my gate, and there's a guy on the phone like this. Right? I've seen these people standing around the gate like this. And I'm just, I'm, I'm carrying my bags to my gate. This guy pulls his phone away and goes, hey, have you found the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior? And I said, uh, is he missing? I went, wait, is that him on the phone right there? Let, let, let me talk to him. I, I think I, I can explain this. Right? I, somehow, I must look like I need it. So I'm preaching from a point of need today that we all need grace. And regardless of what you think about it theologically, there is God's grace is active and living and can change our lives today if we'll let it, if we'll receive it. Now, I have to say, you know, when I hear people talk about grace, I heard, you know, all these theological definitions. People say, well, the grace of God is God's unmerited favor towards us. And I have to say, when you hear that, it sounds really fancy, but it doesn't seem to mean a lot to me. It's his unmerited favor towards us. We're like, I, I'm not really sure how that gets me through what I did Friday night or Saturday. I'm not sure, really sure how that gets me through the week, that it's his unmerited favor towards us. And it's fancy and it's flowery. And yet for a lot of people, when you hear it, it doesn't seem to, it doesn't connect us. We go, okay, well, all right, his unmerited favor. All right, great. Uh, let me see if I can get it into its simplest point. You ready? God's grace is the way that he sees us and the way that he treats us. God's grace is the way that he sees you. He looks at you through the lens of grace. And the way we talk about what grace does in our life, let's get it down in its most practical term. I want to pull it out of the land of theory and pull it out of the land of theology and get it down into where we all live because at, we all need, at some level we all need grace. At some level we need to know that's the way God sees us. And when we come to him and we cry out to him, that's the way that he treats us. So this is what brings me to my text today. If you have a Bible, we're going to read a single verse out of the Old Testament, out of uh, 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 20. I, I think they'll have it on the screen. If you don't have it, we'll, we'll look at it on the screen and we'll read it together. But uh, here, let me tell you, when you read Scripture, here's something you need to know. For every principle that is in the New Testament there is a picture of that principle in the Old Testament. The way that this works, when you interact with the Word of God, when you open the Bible, when you read the Old Testament, those are pictures of the principles of the way that God and the way that Jesus deals with people. So when we say that when God looks at you, He sees you through grace, He treats you on the basis of grace, what we're going to look at today is the picture of that in the Old Testament. There is a picture of the way the grace of God deals with us and the what the grace of God does in our life. You see it? And so but let me give you a little context for this verse before we read it. So David stayed home in the time when the warriors should have gone out to battle. He stayed behind. And while all his men were out fighting the battle, David one day was on the top of his chambers. And he got up and he walked to the edge of his chambers and across the way he could see a beautiful woman named Bathsheba. And he decides as a king that he wants her. And so he sends for her and they enter into this illicit affair. And you can imagine what progresses after that. They're together. All the, she gets pregnant. He tries to cover it up. 
He enters into a, a huge cover-up in which he not only involves one of his faithful soldiers who was the husband of Bathsheba, he tries to pull him off the line to get him to come home to sleep with her so that it'll look like that it's his baby and not David's. And then he enlists some of his soldiers into the cover-up. So now we've gone from making a terrible choice into a cover-up and into a controversy. This thing is escalated. And we get to 2 Samuel chapter 12. This has gone on for a year now, and Bathsheba's giving birth, and now the secret is out. People are about to know that it's not Uriah's. And David now has tried to, he's committed adultery, he's committed murder to cover it up, and he's enlisted some of his other guys, some of his chief advisors, to keep this controversy and this cover-up from escalating. And yet it continues to move up to the surface. We get to Samuel chapter 12. It's a setting that's heavy. The baby is sick, dying. David can hear it. David is praying and he's calling out to God and he's trying to stop it. But he hasn't been able to stop it. And the important thing, one of the important things about the motion of this text is that this whole thing happened. Because David got up and put his eyes in a place where they shouldn't have been. Everything followed from there. He got up. He got up and he saw Bathsheba and all this ensued. Now we get to 2 Samuel chapter 12. He's no longer up. He's on the ground. He's outside of his palace covered in sackcloth and ashes, begging God to spare the life of the child. And the, light, and the child continues to cough and gag and sputter. It's clear that we get to 2 Samuel chapter 12. The text changes. Something different happens. There's two times in this story that David got up. The first time that he got up was he got up to step into temptation. He got up and he saw Bathsheba across the way. The second time that he gets up, now he's on the ground covered in ashes and sackcloth and he's been without food and water for days trying to stop the consequence. Listen to what this says, ready? Listen to this. Verse 20, listen to this first line. So David arose from the ground. This is the second time that he gets up. The first time he got up was for temptation. To step into temptation, the second time he gets up, it was because grace entered into this broken situation and whispered to David, it's time to get up. And I came to talk to you this morning about the grace to get up. The grace to get up. The voice of grace is the voice that calls us to get up out of what we've been trapped in, to get up out of our greatest mistake and our greatest regret. The voice of grace is the grace that calls us to get up again. And I came this morning to tell you to get up. I came this morning to tell you to rise up. And what follows in this verse are the things that grace enables us to do. It's not just the unmerited favor of God. It's not just some theological concept. Grace is the way that God sees you and the way that he treats you. And when we say, God, have grace on me, it enters into our life and it gives us the ability to do something we could have never done on our own. That's the power of grace. And when you can hear the voice of grace, you can hear it saying, get up. It's time to get up. 
It's time to rise up. It's time to let go of the past. It's time to let go of what's been defeating you. It's, the grace says, get up. What we find in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 20, is the grace to get up. Ready? Here we go. Let's read it. Now watch this. Watch this. Here we go. So David rose from the ground. He washed, anointed himself, changed his clothes, and came into the house of the Lord and worshiped. That's it. That's it. When you look at this verse right here, this contains the five things that grace enables us to do. It contains the five things that when you let the grace of God get close enough to your greatest disappointment and close enough to your greatest failure, it enables us to do some very specific things. Ready? Here we go. Number one, the first thing that grace does is that it cleanses our performance. It cleanses our performance. Look at this. So David arose from the ground. The first time he rose, he walked into temptation. The second time he rises now was to walk into grace. And look at this. So David rose from the ground and washed himself. Washed himself. That's an Old Testament picture of cleansing our performance. What did he wash, what did he wash himself of what? It's interesting that when David works through his greatest failure, that where he starts is with he and God. When he repents, he says, and he writes Psalm 51, he says, God, against you and only you have I sinned. David realized he wasn't just in trouble in the circumstances of his life. He was in trouble with God. This is why he said, God, my sin is ever before me. And against you and only you have I sinned. Have mercy on me. David realized that he had fractured his friendship with these choices. And at some point, and when we listen to the grace of God, it's telling us to get up. There is a point, the, the starting place is we have to admit that what we've been caught in is a sin. We have to be willing to call it what it is. Uh, so we, we live in a, a culture that is too PC. We don't call sin, sin anymore. We call it a bad judgment call or a misstep or a mishap or an oversight. We have all these polite terms for saying it. And until we ever are willing to name what we're doing as something against God, we'll never get free of it. and We'll never find the grace of God. I came, to, I came to step on your toes a little bit today because there is a point where we have to say, God, what makes what I've done a sin is the fact that it's against you. What makes something a sin? It's not that it's against the law of the land. It's not that it's against someone's popular opinion. It's not that it's against someone's judgment. It is that it's against the character and the nature of God. And so, that's right. And David says, my problem, God, is with you, against you, and only you have I sinned. We can ever get to that point where we're willing to call it and to say it's a sin. It's at that point that grace can enter in. You say, well, that sounds so desperate. That sounds so dark. I have to, I have to call it a sin. I, ha I, have to, I have to really do this. Let me tell you why. Because repentance is better than remorse. Feeling bad about something is not what changes someone's life. Just having a bad feeling is not what turns someone around. Repentance, when you say, God, I get it. My problem has been with you. What I've been doing is just a symptom of the, my fractured relationship with you. The choices that I've made only point out the fact that there's something wrong between you and I. And I come back to you, God. I let go of that. And I, re I repent and I return. Repentance is better than remorse. And I know you say, I, this sounds, seems so heavy. This is not the, we should start at a lighter note and on something more friendly. And let me tell you why this is such a powerful thing. Because in the New Testament, 
The principle of this is that where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. That there's more grace for your life than there is mistakes. That the grace of God is always greater than the sin in your life. But once you're willing to admit it, what we discover is that where sin abounded, grace abounds even more. There's more grace than there are mistakes. Get close enough to God to discover it for yourself. Say, God, I, I got to deal with my choices. I got to deal with my attitudes. And when David deals with it, I mean, look, look what happens. If you got your Bible, look at this. So Nathan, this prophet, comes to David and exposes this sin and says, David, you're the man. And this is what he's talking about. Look at verse 9. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? Even Nathan says, David, your problem is with God. You see it? By doing evil in his sight. Look at verse 10. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me. This is God speaking in the first person saying, David, what you did was against me. And David, look at this, look at verse 13. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Not against Bathsheba, not against Uriah, not against his army, not against his, his politics. All of those were symptoms for where he was with Jesus, where he, where he was with the Lord Jesus. And he says, I've sinned against the Lord. Look at this. And Nathan said to David, look at this. The Lord has taken away your sin. Just like that. It's all over in one verse. A year worth of controversy and cover-up. A year's worth of scandal. And it all comes to an end as soon as David says, God, my issue is between you and I. And against you and only you have I sinned. And look what happens. The forgiveness is immediate. He removes the barrier between him and God. And he heals the split. It happens in an instant. Think of it. And the minute we say, God, I repent, what we're met with is the overriding, overruling grace of God. Because where sin abounded in your life, grace abounds even more. And it was quick. This is one of the things that people can't believe is that we could say, God, I, I repent for what I've done. It's been against you. And in that moment, the forgiveness is immediate. The barrier is destroyed and the split is healed in one instant this is why grace is called a scandal it's because we want people to pay for their sin if we, we don't like some, what someone does we want to we live in a cancel culture we want to cancel everybody and yet in god world when you say god i'm going to deal with what's between you and i the grace that we receive is immediate he doesn't make david earn it he doesn't say well we'll see let's give it a couple months to see if you're sincere Instead, God dispenses grace in mega doses. This is the grace of God. It's the way that he sees us. It's the way that he treats us. Grace enters into our life. The voice of grace says, you can give up now. So look at it. So he arose from the ground. He washed. Then the second thing that he does, look at this. And he anointed himself. The second thing that grace enables us to do is that it consecrates our person. This is, a, this is a powerful Old Testament picture. David takes oil and pours it over his head until it runs down over his face and over his shoulders. 
This is an Old Testament way of setting someone apart. When somebody was anointed in the Old Testament, it was to set them apart for a special use. It was to dedicate their life for a special purpose. It was to empower them to serve the Lord. And here's David, having been gone without food and water and been on the ground for days. And now he gets up. Grace says, get up, David. And he takes oil and he begins to pour it on himself to remind himself that he's still anointed. And regardless of what your sin has whispered to you, regardless of what your greatest mistake has said to you, I came this morning to tell you, you're still anointed. The oil of God is still on you. That's right. You can clap for that. The oil of God's still on you. And David says, I'm going to remind myself that I still belong to God. I'm going to pour this oil on me to remind me that he still set me apart, that he's still going to use me, that there's still a special purpose that I'm supposed to fulfill on this earth, that God is not done with me yet. This is what grace does, is that it consecrates our person. See, we struggle, as long as we try to, as long as we try to get to God based on our behavior, we'll never experience the grace of God. As long as we say, God loves me as long as I'm good, God loves me as long as I behave, as long as we try to get to God based on our behavior, we'll never know the grace of God. The grace of God is radical and scandalous and promiscuous in many ways because it steps into our situation and says it's time for you to get up, it's time for you to to, to cleanse your performance, it's time for you to consecrate yourself and to set yourself apart again. This is why Romans 3 says, and being justified as a gift by His grace... That what God did through Jesus, by sending him to die on the cross, what he, was that he justified you. He made, in other words, he makes you still usable. The oil is still on you. You're still anointed. Now, let me tell you why I think this is such a struggle for a lot of people. It's because we try to gauge everything by our performance. Or like, you know, I, God should love me because I've been a good guy. Right? God should love me because I, I haven't relapsed in a long time. And I, I, I learned this distinction because I have, all my friends are married. And they all look the same with those rings on and all. And uh, I was at uh, some church gathering at someone's house. And there, it was, you know, all couples and kids and all this stuff. And uh, I, I just noticed the way that this couple parented their kids it was totally foreign to me. I, I, you know, of course the kids act up and they, you know, start reenacting Lord of the Flies at this little dinner we're at and, you know, losing their minds. And, and the mom says to the, to the boy, you are misbehaving. You need to go to time out. I thought, time out? I don't even know what that is. I, I, I wasn't raised by a hip, groovy parenting. In my house, we had, we didn't have time out. We had knockout. You know what I'm saying? That was totally different. And. I mean, she sent her kid to the corner and said, I'm going to count to 10. Count to 10. I'm like, when we counted to 10 in my house, it was to see how long I was unconscious. You know what I'm saying? I had a one, two. I, I mean, I, I couldn't believe it. And then, of course, they pull him out of timeout, you know, and there's like, oh, we're going to have a snack. We're going to have a snack. Kids, what would you like? Do you want pizza? Do you want ravioli? I'm like, she's giving her kids choices. But we'd have choice in my house. You know what my choice was? Would you like to eat? That's it. You can have dinner or you can go without. Right? 
So here's the deal. Every parent in the house, you know that when you discipline your kids, you discipline their behavior. Right? You discipline their behavior. You don't discipline and say, you shouldn't have done that, and by the way, you're out of the family. Right? It, it, that's, that's, not, that's not what you do. And in God's world, right, there is a difference between your position and your condition. And when God deals with us, he deals with our condition, the condition that we're in. But our position is secure. What you did wasn't good, but you're still anointed. What you did was against God, but you're still his son. What you did you shouldn't have done, but you're still his daughter. There is a difference between the position in your life and the condition of your life. And we keep trying to do it all in our condition. And David said, my condition's not good. I had an affair. I got her pregnant. I killed her husband. I covered it up. My position's not, my condition's not good. But my position is secure. This is what grace does. That it makes this distinction between our position and condition. This is why the Bible says that we gave our life to Christ, that we were sealed by the Holy Spirit. Sealed. That it can never be unbroken. See it? So your condition may not be good today. You may be in a world of mess. Maybe it is addiction for you. Maybe it is something within your marriage. Maybe it is something with your kids. Maybe you're on the run. Maybe you're living in something you're covering up and you have to say, my position is a wreck. But your, your position is strong. Your condition may not be great, but your position with the Lord is that he still loves you and you still belong to him and you're still his. This is what grace does, is that it steps into the wreckage of our life and says, get up. This is the grace to get up. This is the grace to get up again and to say, I, I, I'm, I'm going to move forward and I, I'm going to live differently. This is what we find when we move close enough into the presence of God is that he gives us the grace to get up again and to move forward. And, I, and it seems too simple. I, I know for some of us, you're like, this seems too simple. I, David just says, I, 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 I did it. I sinned against God. And then God just forgives him. And then he just reminds himself that he's still his position is still strong. It, it seems too simple. It, th there's no strings attached. All of a sudden, the grace of God just declares us to be right with him and to be pure and holy in his sight, to be totally forgiven. It seems too simple. And, and you, all of us say, isn't there something I need to do? Yes. You have to receive it. That's it. That's all you can do. You can't earn it. You can't buy it. You can't barter with it. You can't try to get it back. All you can do is to receive it. Say, Jesus, I thank you that you died for all the conditions in my life. And when you died on the cross, you secured my position. And I still belong to you. You are still anointed. And you still belong to God. And if you'll get close enough to him. You can hear the voice of grace saying, get up, get up, see it. So what does grace enable us to do? It enables us to cleanse our performance, to consecrate our person. Then number three, to change our path, to change our path. Look at this, look what he does. So David arose from the ground, washed and anointed himself, look at this, and changed his clothes, and changed his clothes. This is symbolic of him changing the direction of his life. 
He had been rolling around in the dirt for a week or more. He had gone without food and water. He had cried till there was no more tears. He had wailed until his voice had gone dry. David was as low as you could get because of what he had done. He's not flippant about his sin. He doesn't try to excuse it. He's been trying to stop and slow the consequences of what he set in motion a year ago. And from outside the palace, while he rolls around in the dirt, begging God to change it, he can hear a child gasping for breath. The palace hung heavy with desperation. Bathsheba knew she was losing that child. David could feel it. Once the palace went silent, David knew that the child was gone. It said that he perceived that the child was gone and he, his men didn't want to tell him, but he came to his men and said, I, the child is gone. They said, y yes, he's, he's gone. And look what he does. He gets up and he changes his clothes and he moves forward. He stops rolling in it. He stops rolling around in it. And he gets up and he changes his clothes. He's like, I, this, this old morning clothes, I, I can't wear these anymore. This, this old way of what I've been doing, I, I have to get up. Grace enters into the lowest point of David's life and says, David, it's time to get up. And so Grace rises him up from the ground and he puts on a new set of clothes and he moves forward. This is what Grace enables us to do is to stop rolling in it, to stop rolling around in the depression, to stop rolling around in the guilt and the condemnation, to stop rolling around in it. This is the nature of God. I mean, the New Testament principle of this is the prodigal son. The prodigal takes the money that was due to him and he goes to a foreign land and he spends it all on wild, crazy living. He hits to a point where he's lost it all and he's in a pig pen. He's got at the lowest point, he's in dirt, covered in manure. The Bible says he came back to his senses and says, I have to get back home. Gets up out of the ground and he wears those old clothes back home. And as he gets close enough where his father could see, just as he tops the hill, the father has been looking for his son. When he gets close enough to him, father takes off those old clothes and puts on a new, puts on new clothes on the prodigal son. This is the nature of God is that he always removes these old death rags we've been living in, these old things we've been rolling around in and covers us with the garment of praise and covers us with the garment of forgiveness. This is what grace does is that it gives us the ability to change the direction of our life. I went through a couple of weeks where I was in different places, but every place I was at, they were having a, uh, a marathon, like a, you know, a running thing, you know, and I, I'm not a runner. My deal is, you know, why run when you can drive? And, uh, you know, that's just the way I am. But I, I, was, I, was, I ended up at this marathon in Houston, and uh, there was a guy standing on the sidewalk with Lululemon you know, the Lululemon yoga pants, like the tight, like where you can hear the fabric going, ah, you know what I'm talking about, ah, or it's just tight, Lululemon yoga pants with cowboy boots on. I thought, does this guy not have a family or 
Does he not have friends to say, bro, you shouldn't leave the house looking like that. That is not a good look. Where he's, he's super prideful about it, walking around in his Lululemons with his cowboy boots, Lululemons tucked into the boots, like walking around with the boot top flapping around, you know. I was like, doesn't this guy have any friends going, bro, you should wear that out in public, man. Doesn't this guy have a family and say, you're not going to leave the house like that, are you? Well, it, it, I, I know I'm just the fill-in guy, but can I just be the fill-in pastor for a minute and tell you that guilt doesn't look good on you. That condemnation you've been wearing doesn't fit you. That despair and depression and anger and doubt, it doesn't look good on you. It doesn't fit you. That's not what you need to be wearing. And God sent Jesus to die on the cross and to raise again so he could cover us with new garments of purity. That's what you should be wearing. And maybe it's time to take off those outfits that are too tight on you. Maybe it's time to take off those things they don't fit you anymore. That old addiction doesn't fit you anymore. Those old problems, don't, they don't fit you anymore. It's time to take them off. And when you get close enough to the presence of God, you can hear grace saying, it's time to change your direction. It's time to change your path. Because when we get close enough to God, this is what grace does, is that it enables us to change our path and to move in a totally new direction. And then number four, is that it causes us to celebrate our pardon. Look what he does, look at this. So David arose from the ground, anointed himself, washed and changed his clothes, and he came into the house, look at this, and worshiped. He came into the house and he worshiped. After all this has gone on, think about a year long of controversy and cover up. Now the baby is dead. Bathsheba's broken hearted. David couldn't stop it with all his power. Even though he was a man after God's own heart, he couldn't stop it with all his begging. And it's over. And David now gets up, changes his clothes, and enters into the house of the Lord and begins to worship. That seems so outlandish. When we hear that, you're like, I don't even know how he could do that. How anybody could, how, how do you do that? What is it that David's worshiping? He's not worshiping the loss. He's not worshiping the tragedy. He's worshiping his pardon. Some historians say this is when Psalms, that, uh, the, when he wrote the Psalms that says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. I was glad when I heard God say, there's still a place for you at church. There's still a place for you in the house of the Lord. I was glad when I heard grace say, it's not over for you yet. I was glad when I heard grace say that I've been pardoned. I was glad when I heard Romans 8, 1 said, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for what the law could not do. Weak as it was, God did by sending Jesus in the likeness of sinful flesh that he might condemn sin in the flesh that we might live in the spirit. I wonder, do we have anybody here that can worship God because they've been pardoned? That can worship God because they've been free? That can worship God because they've been forgiven? I wonder if we have some people say, I know what that's like. I wonder if we just give him some praise this morning and say, Lord Jesus, thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for redeeming me. Thank you for setting me free from the law of sin and death and the curse. Thank you for breaking the hold of sin off of me. That's what we worship. We don't worship the mistakes. We don't worship what we had to go through. We worship the fact that had it not been for God, it could have been a whole lot worse. That he pardoned us. Think of it. Whew. Worship. 
not looking at ourselves, it's looking at Jesus. And we say, Jesus, you pardon me. Psalms 103 says, bless the Lord, all my soul, and forget none of his benefits. Who heals, who restores, who redeems, who renews your youth like the eagle. Who forgives, who pardons. So we say, Lord Jesus, thank you for pardoning me. Thank you for forgiving me. You're still anointed. You're forgiven. God still loves you. Yeah, I think people have trouble worshiping. It's, not a, it's never about the music. It's not about, oh, I don't like this song, or I don't like what, how they play this. Or I think people have trouble worshiping because they still see God as frustrated with them. They still see God up off of his throne, pacing back and forth, going, what am I going to do with these people? What is up with these people? How much longer are they going to be terrible? And we see God as kind of mildly frustrated with us. I always heard grace taught as something, as the way that God just tolerates us. I've heard that a lot from pulpits. That, you know, yes, you're saved, but just barely. Yes, God loves you, but just barely. Grace is the way that he tolerates your presence. Grace is what keeps him from destroying you by fire. Right? I heard all that stuff. Grace is not the way that he tolerates you. It's the way that he gives you himself. It's the way that you experience pardon and forgiveness. It's the way that you enter in. God's not frustrated with you. He's not upset with you. He's not ticked off by your presence. You still have a place in his house. You still have a place in his presence. And I wonder if we got some people who can say, thank you, Jesus, for forgiving me. Thank you for setting me free. Still got some worshipers in the house. See it? See how powerful this one verse is? This one verse has all the motions of grace in it. So what then does grace enable us to do? It cleanses our performance. It consecrates our person. It sets us apart. It changes our path. It gives us the ability to get up and to move forward and to not live in the past and to not be held in the grips of those old bad decisions. David, when he takes those old clothes off, is symbolic of saying, I'm taking all that off. And I'm going to move forward, and I'm going to go into the house. I'm going to go into the Lord's house, and I'm going to worship. And then the fifth thing that grace does, you ready? Look at it. So David arose from the ground, washed, anointed himself, changed his clothes. He came into the house of the Lord and worshiped. Look at this. Then he came into his own house, and when he requested, they set food before him, and he ate. You know why that could happen? Because he was still king. He was still king. Our culture wants to cancel everybody and say, oh, your life's over. You made a terrible decision, your life's over. And yet David says, no, no, no. Not only has God anointed me, but I'm still going to live out the purpose for which he created me. See it? And the servant said to him, what is this thing that you've done? That They're speechless. They're like, how can you... You've done all this, and now you get up and you change your clothes, and you worship God, and now you're back eating. What is this about? Look at verse 22. And he said, while the child was still alive, I fasted, I wept. I said, who knows? The Lord may be gracious that the child may live. But now he has died. And why should I fast? I can't bring him back. I shall go to him. But he will not return to me. You see, David said, I can't change the consequences. Now, I think, you know, a lot of people have preached in, and what they call cheap grace, which means like, hey, you do what you want to do, and God just forgives it, and then you go back and keep doing it. That's cheap grace. 
where you're, you're using grace as a way to continue to sin. You're using grace as a way to continue to live in bad decisions. Were there consequences in David's life? Yes. Nathan said the sword would never depart from his house. That David, from one tragedy to the next, all four of his sons died. One killed the other. One died unexpectedly. They all systematically died. The sword never left David's house. Were there consequences because of his decision and because of his cover-up? Yes. And the death of the child is not the proof that God kills kids in order to discipline us. I want to be clear about this. Lest you think that this is a proof text for that God takes away a child so he can make you feel bad or discipline you. That, that, that's not what this is about. The death of the child was an indication that there'd be one more son that would come from the line of David that would also die, but this time would die for the sins of all mankind. It was a prophetic picture that God wasn't done with David, that he was going to bring his redemptive purpose out of the midst of terrible consequences. That's what's going on. You see it? David continues in his position. And look what happens. Now look at verse 24. Then David comforted his wife, Bathsheba. When all this started, she was just a woman on a housetop. Who is that woman over there? Now as, they, as he's worked through all of the, the muck and the mire and all the fallout of his bad decisions, somewhere along the way, that illicit relationship became a covenant relationship. Now this relationship is been brought into order in the presence of the Lord. Look at it. Then he comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her and she gave birth to a son and named him Solomon. Now the Lord loved him. Think of what's happening out of David's greatest mistake. I've always heard about this story. People say, well, if David committed adultery and committed murder and God forgave him, he can forgive you too. That's not the point of the story. The point of the story is the contradiction. It is that David is a godly man who's capable of doing ungodly things. It is that David, as the God's great king, is capable of doing something so common and so pedestrian and so base. That David, the great giant killer, is almost defeated by another giant of adultery and murder. That David, who wrote the Psalms, is the same man who engineered the cover-up. It's this contradiction that he had to live in the midst of his consequences, that he couldn't stop it, that, it, that, that, that circumstances kept escalating. But in the middle of the consequences, Bathsheba becomes his wife and gives birth to the most famous king of the Old Testament, the most wise man, though who will be the most richest and the wisest man of all of the history of Israel. And I came to tell you that there's a king in your consequence. Bathsheba gives birth to a king. Bathsheba gives birth to a king. There's a king in your consequence. God's going to bring something good out of what you've been through. God's going to do something powerful and incredible. What looked like it was going to work against you, God's going to make it work for you. That God turns the curses into a blessing for those who love him. See it? What you thought was going to be your defeat God's going to bring something great out of it. There is a king in your consequence. Instead of letting your past defeat you, 
instead of let, building your life around your greatest disappointment, instead of letting your, your image be created because, by what you've done or shouldn't have done or should have done or how things could have gone differently, instead of doing all that, could you just get close enough to grace to say, God, do something in me that only I can do. And grace is the ability for us to get up. And the people in Scripture that were broken, God came to them and said, get up. When Elijah was burnt out and he ran from Jezebel and he hides out under the tree, an angel shows up and says, get up, it's time for you to get up. When Joshua thought he couldn't do the assignment, God comes to him and says, Joshua, it's time for you to get up, to get up. When Gideon felt like he, he was unqualified to lead Israel and to do what God had called him to do, and so he hides out in the threshing floor, and an angel appears to him and says, get up. Every time the grace of God moves into someone's life, you can always hear the voice of grace saying, get up. And the woman caught in adultery when she thought she didn't have another chance and was about to be stoned to death. Jesus says, get up and go and sin no more. Grace enables us to get up. I came to call you to join the fellowship of those who have gotten up. Get up, it's time to get up this morning. It's time to get up. It's time to get up out of the addiction. It's time to get up out of the drama. It's time to get up out of the things that have held you back. It's time to get up and to realize there's a king and your consequence that God's going to give birth to something beautiful in the midst of something terrible. Can you hear grace saying to you, get up, it's time to get up. So I'm going to ask if we would just for a minute just to bow your heads and close your eyes with me. And I wonder this morning, if maybe you spent your whole life thinking, how could God love me after what I've done? How could God ever use me after what I've done? And you've worn depression, you've worn anxiety, and you've worn doubt, and you've worn dis despair, and those garments don't fit you. You were made for a garment of holiness. You've worn the garment of suspicion and cynicism woundedness and today the word of God comes to you and says get up it's time to get up if you've never opened your life to Christ if maybe your mistakes have kept you from Jesus maybe you've always kept him of arm's length maybe you've always kind of had that in the back of your head I'm not good enough God couldn't possibly do anything with me and now you see man grace has brought the provision of Jesus what God did through Jesus. When Jesus came to live and die on a cross and to be resurrected, was so that grace could be dispensed into your life. And if you've never opened your life to Christ, maybe you've known him in a cultural way, maybe you've known Jesus in a religious way, but you've never known him in a personal way, never sensed his peace, never sensed his presence, nothing in you has ever been stirred because of the presence of Jesus right where you sit this morning, would you pray this prayer with me? The Bible says we're willing to believe that he's the son of God, that he died on the cross and rose again, and ask him, and ask him. And when you ask, God dispenses grace. There's enough faith in this house for the worst of us to open our life up to Christ. Your secrets can't have control over you anymore. Your shame can't have control over you anymore. 
your struggles can't have control over you anymore. When you give your life to Christ, you surrender your will. You say, Jesus, I, I, I give you the very core of me. If you've never done that, would you pray this prayer with me? I'll just pray it slowly enough so you can hear it in your head and hear it in your heart. Would you just say, dear Jesus, dear Jesus, I believe you are the Son of God. I believe you are the Son of God. I believe you died on a cross for me. I believe you died on a cross for me. And I believe that you're alive. And I believe that you're alive. And as best as I know how. And as best as I know how. I ask you to step out of heaven. I ask you to step out of heaven. And step into my heart. And step into my heart. And be the leader. And be the leader. And the Lord of my life. And the Lord of my life. If you just prayed that prayer with me and you meant it with all your heart, if you prayed it for the first time or you prayed it because the consequences of your life has taken you so far away from God like the prodigal, you just need to get back home. If you prayed it for the first time or you prayed it again, I want you to just put your eyes on me. Just look right here at me. You prayed that prayer and you meant it with all your heart. Just look right here at me, yeah. I know it. I knew this is the word for today. How many people this morning would say, I'm a believer, but I need to get up. I'm a believer, but I need to get up. I've been caught in some stuff. I've been mired down in some stuff. I've been weighted down in some stuff, and I, I need to get up. And you'd say, pray for me. And I'm going to ask you to do the same thing. Just look right here at me and say, I need to get up. In just a minute, I'm going to close in prayer. I'm going to ask everyone to stand up. If you raised your head this morning because you prayed to give your life to Christ, or if you raised your head because you've been mired down in the past, beat down by the past, and now you heard the voice of grace saying, get up. I want to ask us all to stand up. If you're in need of grace, if you gave your life to Christ this morning, I'm going to ask you to come and just stand all the way across the front. Our prayer team will be down here to pray over you and to pray with you. And let's, you know, what David did after his major fall was to get back into the house of the Lord and to receive ministry. And some of us need to receive ministry this morning and just say, Lord Jesus, fall fresh on me. Let me help me to celebrate my washing and my purity and my pardon. Lord Jesus, thank you for dying in our place. Thank you for rising again. Holy Spirit, we ask you to move out across this place and draw people to yourself as only you can. And in your strong and powerful name, I pray. Amen. Amen. If you prayed that prayer with me this morning, would you just step out as the band sings? If you need to get up out of something you've been admired in and you need someone to pray with you and to pray for you as we sing, come on.